like your life was unraveling? As if all the threads that held your life together at one point were coming undone. I've been there. I've been there. I woke up at age 27 in my high school bedroom looking at a calendar with absolutely nothing to do. And I was thinking back on a time in my life where Jesus seemed to make sense, and I knew who God made me to be. And I was living as a missionary in Vienna, Austria, and I was teaching students the Bible, and they were coming to me with their questions about him. And each day I was praying the gospel over me, and it felt like my life was so, I was so confident. And I knew who I was, and I knew who God created me to be. But I was back in Michigan, just longing for some answers. I found myself listening to this album called The Undoing, and it felt like all of these ways that I had interacted with God were coming undone. I picked up a book called Thrashing About With God, because that's what it felt like. I didn't understand necessarily how to interact with him, and, and I felt like he was calling me into a new season to just learn how to be with him. But I didn't know how to do that. I just really hoped and I wished and I wanted to go back to a season where things made sense, where I knew how to interact with him. But I found myself in this place of unraveling. Maybe you found yourself there. Maybe it was a season where you left your structure and your home and your community environment and you went off to college and, and they, then you start asking all these questions about faith and about who you are and what you're supposed to do with the rest of your life. That can be a place of unraveling. Maybe it was in the middle of your life where there's a death of a loved one and you don't know how to act or be or function without them. Maybe it's the loss of a job, and you were so confident in that place, and, and now it's gone. Maybe it happens even later in your life, and, and you've finished um, your season of work, and you've entered into a new season called retirement. And you think, God, I don't know what to do besides all of this, the way that I used to be with you. You know, I think this is normal that we all go through seasons of unraveling. You know why I know that? Because as I, pick, I open my scriptures, I see that over and over and over again, lives have been unraveled. You think of Abraham, who's been called to leave his place, his home and his family and his culture and go to the place that God would show him. Man, that can be uncomfortable. You think of Moses, who's been asked to lead the people out of Egypt, and they had, they had confidence in being a slave. They knew what to do the next day. What about, what about jo- uh, Joseph? Man, his family throws him into a pit. Then he's in prison for something that he didn't even feel like it was his fault for. What about the time when his family comes back to him and they're trying to figure out how to do life in family environment again? There are a lot of times in life where 
Life doesn't make sense, and we're trying to navigate it. And the more that I study the spiritual journey, the more that I realize this is normal. At Denver Seminary, I've been through a program on Christian formation and soul care. And one of the authors uh, that I've been reading is Walter Brueggemann. He's an Old Testament scholar, and he talks about that in our spiritual journey, there are three places that we often find ourselves. We find ourselves sometimes in this place of orientation, where everything seems to make sense. We know who we are, we know who God is, we know how to interact, and it's oriented, it's stable, it's secure. And sometimes we find ourselves in this place of disorientation, where things make, to make no sense. That, that phase in our life where things seem to be unraveling. Maybe we feel stuck. Maybe we feel like we're driving ahead and it's just all fog in front of us. And then sometimes we find ourselves in a place of new orientation where we've gone through this process and we, we have been given a new realization and we're able to enter into life in a fresh way, maybe with a different paradigm or a different perspective and as if God gave us new glasses and we're able to see again. So we find ourselves in one of these places throughout our spiritual journey. And today we're going to enter into a parable because this is our last day of the summer studying the parables. And, and the way that I read this is in the context of disorientation. Because it seems like the Old Testament gave a lot of structure and order where the disciples of Yahweh were trying to learn his way. They were trying to figure out his heart and connect to him. And God gave them the law. He gave them structure. He gave them order. And I think one of the biggest moments of disorientation in all of scripture is when Jesus enters the scene. Because what are you going to do with this guy? <laughs> Who is he? I don't know how to interact with God in this way. What do I do? So today I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. And now that we have a smart uh, app, uh, you can also open your app and you can take notes on that under the sermon category. So if you like real notes, you had that in your service guide, but if you like digital notes that you can take with you anywhere you go, you can <laughs> open that app up right now. And as Harvey said, all y'all can do that, okay? <laughs> all right. All right, chapter 9 of Matthew, starting in verse 14. When the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples, they don't fast. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the, a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine spills, and the skins are destroyed. But the new wine 
is put into new wineskins, and so both are preserved. Here we have the disciples of John. I think this is interesting. Because it seems like in the New Testament, we hear about the Pharisees and the scribes and the ones who are are true to their Torah and their law, and they are law-abiding citizens, and they, when they come to Jesus to ask him a question, it seems like they're trying to test him and trying to prove that his way is not good and that he is not who he says he is. And then we have Jesus' disciples who are kind of in this place of disorientation and they're just partying with Jesus. They're trying to figure it out as being his disciples, his apprentices. But it's interesting to me that this passage is about the the disciples of John. John the Baptist was their rabbi, in a sense. And maybe he was a little bit crazy because he was out in the wilderness and he wore weird clothes, but he talked about the coming of a Messiah and that the kingdom of heaven was near and that there was a gospel of repentance and turning toward, toward God again. And it's these disciples who I think are invited into this place of disorientation, but they don't know if they want to go there yet. And that's where where we sit, with these disciples. Because they were fasting. Now, they had been taught in their life and in their orientation that fasting was the good thing to do. Now, sometimes I accidentally fast because I forget to plan out what I'm going to have for lunch. But these disciples actually were really intentional about fasting. They were fasting probably twice a week because that's what they were taught was the way to connect with God. And by fasting, they were refraining from eating something in order to connect spiritually with God and make themselves available to connect with him. That was a really good practice. So it makes sense why they're like, what in the world is going on? This is the way I know how to connect with God. What what are we to do now? But what I love about the disciples of John is as they're seeing this, as they're, they're seeing that their practices are maybe working, but not as good as what the disciples of Jesus are having, they go to Jesus and they ask him a question. I think we have something to learn from them here. I think that the disciples of John remain curious and they seek Jesus out. Sometimes in our places of disorientation, we just want to revert back and we don't really want to deal with what God is calling us into. And so we avoid it. We just want to go back to what's safe and what feels good. And sometimes I think we freak out in this place and we don't want to hear Jesus' answers. We want to just follow after whatever the culture says and, or get lost sometimes in our questions. And we come to the bottom of ourself and there's no answer. I think there are people right now in our Christian culture that are coming to that place. They're asking these kind of deconstruction type questions and they're not going to Jesus. They're just landing in their questions and landing in the muck and the mire And they're giving up on marriages. They're giving up on on walking faithfully with Jesus. They're giving up on Christian community and leaving the church. 
And I don't think that's what the disciples of John are doing. So what we can learn from the disciples of John is that when we experience these seasons of disorientation or an invitation to unravel, we need to remain curious. And we need to keep seeking Jesus. Now, when they seek Jesus, how does he respond? It's not necessarily like many of the other times when when Jesus responds to maybe the Pharisees or the Sadducees, Jesus gives them a parable. He gives them an image. And I love this because I think oftentimes in our seasons of unraveling and disorientation, the best thing that Jesus can do to us or do for us is to speak through image, through parable. A parable is simply an image, a metaphor that comes alongside our life. And as we look at it, we can see ourselves in it like a mirror. And if we let those parables or those images or those visions or dreams or or metaphors that come from the Spirit of God speak to us in our place of unraveling, we can meet him in a place that doesn't have to do with fear. It just has to be enjoyed. So I, I think that Jesus still gives us parables today. He, he's always been speaking in parable. And so when Jesus gives us a parable, I think we, need, we can ask two questions. The first question is, what is significant about this image in my life? And second, what might Jesus want me to take away from this image? And in today's passage, we actually have three different verses with three different images. So today we're going to go through a process of asking those two questions of each of the images. The first image is in the next verse. Jesus replies to them, Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Check out what what word comes up twice here. What is it? Bridegroom. In each of these verses, twice, the image that we're going to call out is said twice. So here, Jesus is inviting them to see the metaphor of the bridegroom. Oh man, I love this image. Because a bridegroom is not just a father, it's not a master, it's not just a friend. The bridegroom is a relational promise. Now in this Jewish wedding, the context of what the disciples of John would have been thinking about is in the context of their Jewish wedding. And that's very different than in today's wedding because there is a process of waiting that we do in our weddings for the bride, right? But in this case, The Jewish processional would end, and the end of the ceremony, um, that actually, the end of the processional would begin the beginning of the celebration. And the entire town would come out to celebrate because the groom has showed up on the scene. And Jesus is saying that he's shown up on the scene, that he's present, that he's there. He says, Why are you fasting when I'm here? 
It's like there were ways that, that they were connecting with God, maybe similar to ways that maybe we would connect with a loved one when they're far away. We'd get out our FaceTime, we would get out our Skype and type in and connect with them through a phone or we'd call them up. But if they get on a plane and they get on an Uber and they show up at your doorstep and they actually arrive, are you gonna get out your FaceTime? No, (laughs) you're gonna just enjoy them. You're gonna sit down over a meal together. You're gonna share life, exchange stories and, and be together. So the bridegroom is this image that is this presence of Jesus. He's he's not some ethereal, you know, long, faraway God or judge out in the universe. He wants to be present with them. And he's promised to be present. He's promised to come. I love that this is the metaphor of a relational vow. That long ago, Jesus had promised that he would come. He promised that he would come to save and redeem and restore, and he's there. So the disciples of John are being invited into Jesus' presence, invited into his in relationship with him. And relationships are messy. It's not necessarily organized and structured, and, and you can't figure it out. Sometimes the... If you focus too much on the mechanics of a relationship, you're not actually in the relationship. And so Jesus is inviting them to be. He's inviting them to engage in relationship. And you might ask me, well, Yvonne, that was cool. Jesus was there in the flesh, but what about now? Well, even though he was, he said he would go away, and he did go away, his, his, the manifestation of him in human form, but he promised that he would send something better. He would send his spirit that would never leave us, that would never forsake us. And now we live in a time where we can connect with the spirit of Jesus every single day, every single moment. And so Jesus wants us to be present to relationship with him. In this, I believe that Jesus is inviting us to actually let go of those structures so that we have the freedom in our hands to hold on to our Savior, to hold on to that relationship. If we focus too much on those mechanics and how we can connect with God, we may end up missing out on the relationship with God. If we think that we can check off the boxes of, I did my devotions today. I came to church. I fasted through Lent. Whatever X, Y, Z. We may end up missing out on the fact that he wants to be near us. That he wants to be present to us. That the spirit of God, the one that raised Jesus from the dead, is living inside of us. And he wants to speak and be in relationship with us. So the metaphor of the bridegroom is letting go of our structures and holding on to our Savior. Let's look at the next verse. Verse 16 says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment 
and a worse tear is made. This may seem to be a little unrelated, but I don't think it would be that unrelated in a Jewish thought. Because what do you do when you go to a wedding? You put on, you dress up, right? You get out your new outfit. I think that's because this garment, the word that's used twice here, there's a purpose for a garment. There's a garment that you wear to a wedding. There's also a garment that you wear while you fast. And often, or the image earlier was that you're not going to go to a wedding mourning, in your mourning clothes. I mean, imagine walking, like putting on all your dirty clothes and sackcloth and ashes and showing up at a big party where they're joyous and celebrating. That just doesn't fit. (laughs) Or you have a favorite outfit and you've worn it to every single wedding for the last seven years. And, and it's sort of wearing out, but you love it so much that you pull it out of the, the cupboard and you realize, oh, shoot, there's a little tear on it. And so, well, I got this new outfit and I don't like it as much, and so let me just rip part of that off and repair this old outfit so that I can go to this wedding and look beautiful like I always want to look, right? <laughs> but you get to the wedding and you bend over for a picture and... Like, that's so uncomfortable. That would be so embarrassing. You're not going to actually put a new piece of cloth on an old garment. No, you're going to go out and buy a new outfit. And maybe now you're realizing why I love this passage so much. We're already talking about weddings, and we're talking about the groom, and new outfits. Oh, I love it. Okay, it'll get better. (laughs) But no. The garment. Jesus is inviting them to a new garment. And this is interesting because if you do any kind of peripheral study of the word garment throughout the scriptures, Jesus uses this image so often. God, the God that we serve, is a garmenting God. It says that he garments, you know, the the heavens in splendor and majesty. But you know, the first time, that God provided a new garment. That was way back in Genesis, where Adam and Eve come to God, or God comes to them, and finds them in hot flashes of shame, not knowing what to do with the pain of their sin. And they're trying to cover themselves because they're embarrassed. But God comes to them, and he actually kills an animal and covers them with skin, and he creates new garments for them. I think that's a beautiful invitation that Jesus is inviting the disciples of John to look at, because there's something that Jesus is offering in terms of covering their shame that he wants to provide something new for them, something fresh. And this isn't something that the disciples can do on their own. They can't just go go patch up their shame. They can't just cover it up. They need Jesus to invite them in and that his righteousness can cover their shame. You know, I think 
there's a gal who really inspires me. Her name's Johnny Erickson Tata. And she says that every single day when she wakes up as a quadriplegic, she requires help putting on her garments. And she actually wrote an article that just jumped off the page. And she said that she thanks God every single day that she can't dress herself because she realizes that it is God's garments of righteousness that she can't put on herself. So every day she receives that kind of promise as she's clothed for that day. And I think that's true for us too. I think in this image of the garment that Jesus is inviting us to actually put down our patching up and actually invite God to, to clothe us in his fresh grace. Jesus invites us to stop or give up on patching up our old ways in order to receive his fresh grace. Because when we're in this posture of receiving his fresh grace, we're able to know that it is not of ourselves, it is a gift of God. That we come to, go to Jesus with dependence. We can't just figure it out on our own. And so sometimes I think that when we've gone through a time and, and it seems like we're able to connect with God in certain ways, and maybe we feel this this breaking from that, and it seems like maybe we're not able to connect with God like we were before. Maybe the reading the scriptures the way that we used to is just not adding up for us anymore. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's coming to church or being in a certain group, or, and there's, there's this emptiness that we're feeling in it. I think God, Jesus may be inviting us to, to try something new, to receive fresh grace, maybe to go out for a walk in nature and just be present to him. Maybe it's trying out a totally different you know, stream of Christianity and, and taking the good parts of that. You know, doing some liturgy or um, doing some forming, centering prayer that can where God is, can come to us in a fresh way and we can receive something good and, and fresh for that season. So I believe that the, the image that Jesus gives with this garment is that we don't have to just patch it up. We can come to him to receive his fresh righteousness and fresh grace. Let's look at the next image. Verse 17 says, Neither is... Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bursts, and the wine will be spilled. The skins are destroyed, but the new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. Here we have the wineskin. But I want us to look a little bit deeper, because the wineskin, I find this fascinating. It's also a garment. It was the garment of the sacrificed animal. And the wineskin itself is actually 
a container. And as we look at this image, the, the image that Jesus was inviting me to look into is actually what goes through that container is a grape. So we've got the groom, the garment, and the grape. And this wineskin, this is what they would have used uh, to put the crushed grapes in. And it would have to go through a long process of transformation. So after talking with my friend Rich here, he was telling me about his process of making wine and that one of his favorite and, and most maybe poignant images that he feels like in this process is that the grape, this little, you know, spherical fruit, you know, you could throw it up in the air, catch it in your mouth and enjoy all the, the good juiciness of it. It's good, right? And, but in order for it to go through this process, the skin of the grape has to break that it has to go through this process of crushing. And once it's being put into this container, this wineskin of transformation, a container of transformation, which I think may be symbolic of these moments in our lives of disorientation, where literally the, the grape doesn't stay a grape. It goes into this wineskin and, and the sugars start to eat or the yeast starts to eat and on the sugars, and the entire chemical makeup of the grape changes. And the outpouring of this transformation is a completely different chemical makeup. And I think that many of you might delight in this process, that it's an entirely different delicious drink that doesn't look or taste necessarily anything like what it was before. And I think Jesus is inviting us to, to go through this process of transformation, to let the wineskin do its work in us. And this is a process. I mean, the, the crushed grapes are in this wineskin for a very long time. This is a drawn-out process. And often in our seasons where we step into times of disorientation in an instant world, a world that we can click a button and we can have something delivered to our door. Yes. We can, right? You like that, Jan. Amazon one click. Yes. <laughs> Amazon one click. You know, we live in, in a microwave generation where things happen fast and we get answers fast and, and it's hard to go through a long and arduous process of transformation. But that's what the grape has to do. It has to sit there. It has to ferment. It has to engage in that process for a long time. And I think, I think we need to engage in that process, however long it takes, in order to come out the other side something better. You know, there's one additional verse that in the Gospels we have another account of the same question that the disciples of John ask. It's in Luke uh, chapter 5. There we go. And at the very end, he adds, he tacks one additional sentence onto this parable. And he says, no one, after drinking the old wine, desires the new. For he says, the old is good enough. How often 
Do we let our lives and our structures and our orientation to God be good enough? And we're afraid to go through this process, this long process of transformation every day where we come out the other side something different. I think Jesus invites us to to really let go of that good enough in order to process further transformation in our lives. That yesterday's good enough is going to be a grape. But if we stay a grape, we'll never get to the wine. And the wine is such a beautiful metaphor because throughout all of Scripture, you know what the wine represents? Joy. There's delight. There's merriment. There's pleasure in what comes from the wine. And so we would miss out on the joy if we stayed a grape. We would miss out on the, on the better wine, the better ending. And how often, once we've gone, once we've seen some of the new things that are out there, we don't want to go back to the old. I mean, look at how many smartphones you guys have. Do you guys really want to go back to those long cords on the wall? <laughs> like, you guys have seen the smart TVs, right? Who wants to go play with an antenna and make sure that you can actually get the signal? No. That's because the good, the new, is actually good. But sometimes we don't see it. So I believe that Jesus is casting this picture of the wedding. He's casting a picture of the bridegroom, the relationship that we can have with him. Casting the vision of of the garments that will cover us with his righteousness. And the joy that will come through the process of transformation. If only we consent to the process. So I know for me, in my journey of disorientation, that God has taken me through a long process. And I can say that I would not be standing here today speaking to you. I wouldn't have even allowed myself to do that if it weren't for this process of disorientation. And God has has allowed me to reorient in some ways, to, to be filled with joy in his presence, and to learn how to be with him in a new way. And I think that can be true for for you too. That doesn't mean that I'm done with all of my disorientation. We're going to find ourselves in one of these three places throughout our entire lives. But I can say that the process of that transformation, if you let Jesus do its work in your life, it will be good. It will be freeing. It will be joyous. So as we, as we close this section, I'd love for us to consider when we're going through these phases of disorientation, what would be helpful for us to remember? What would be helpful for us to take away? I think on one hand, we can learn a lot about Jesus' posture toward us in our disorientation. We can see that he's the groom, that he vows to be present to us through his Holy Spirit, that And sometimes the way that he's present to us is through the community of believers, where where we are actually able to connect with the spirit of Jesus because we show up in a place where the spirit of Jesus is in one another. 
Jesus promises the garments. He gives us, he offers us new clothes to cover our shame. So that as we're journeying through this process of disorientation, there may be times where we feel like we messed it up. But that's okay. He wants to offer us new garments and fresh grace. And I do believe that Jesus promises that his posture toward us is that he will transform us when we consent to that transformation. He'll show up if we just let let him do his thing. And then I believe there are some things that we can do in our process, in our places of disorientation. When, when things are feeling like life is coming undone or that our whole world is unraveling, we can keep seeking Jesus. Instead of looking to, to the culture and all these self-help books and, and just trying to understand what's really happening, although those are good things, We can't miss that we have to meet Jesus because it is him that will give us that fresh grace. It is him that can do that transforming work and result in an amazing, joyous place. So let me give you a little time now to think about what practices could you do in your season of disorientation. Maybe this week, you could, you could meditate on one of these images, the garment, the, gr- the bridegroom, the grape, and sit with those. Allow Jesus to use that metaphor to come alongside your life and to mirror it in some way. Maybe you're in that season of disorientation and you're thinking, what can I do? Well, maybe... You just open your palms every single day and you ask the Lord to cover you with his fresh grace. I mean, it says in Lamentations that his mercies are new every morning. So he will be faithful to show up when you're faithful to go to him. Or maybe you're actually in a season where God has reoriented you and Or you're in the process and you just need to remember that he is doing that transformative work. So we can rejoice in the slow and the steady transformative work in our life. When we see those little wins, like, oh, I didn't react in the same way that I used to. That's good. (laughs) When, oh, Jesus came and met me as I was staring up at the trees, and that's good. Whatever that is, to continue to rejoice that his presence is with us and that he, his, his grace is fresh. And I know, all y'all, <laughs> that when we go through this process with Jesus, when we consent to our transformation, that God is good to show up. Because one day, there will be a day When there is an entirely giant, epic wedding feast, it's called the marriage supper of the lamb. (laughs) And one day, Jesus, the bridegroom, is going to come again. And in that place, as he comes again to us, we are going to have the biggest party of the ages. And I am super excited that the bridegroom is going to be there. And we're going to be clothed in new garments. Garments of glorified bodies, but I hope it's also beautiful garments too. (laughs) And 
And I believe that we're going to be grabbing the biggest, the biggest goblet that we can find, and we're going to be toasting and, and celebrating God's transformative work in our lives that he has over and over and over come through for us. And I'm hoping that it is the best wine in all of history as we toast and we clink glasses to Jesus and the transformative work that he has done in each and every one of our lives. I hope to see you there, and I hope to see that you have consented to that kind of unraveling. Let's pray. Father God, King Jesus, Holy Spirit, it is you who is the groom. It is you who is present to us. It is you who covers us with your righteousness. And it is you that shows up for our transformation. May we consent to being transformed this week. In Jesus' name and the power of his spirit, all God's people said, amen. amen.